0: My guest today is Amy Elizabeth Fox. Amy is the CEO and co-founder of Mobius Executive Leadership. And it's safe to say that the work I do in the world uh, at CONU and my private coaching practice might not be possible, certainly would not be as enriched and as robust, if not for the work of Mobius in our field. Uh, Mobius has has drawn upon and woven together an incredibly rich and deep intellectual, spiritual heritage for how change happens in individuals and groups and across organizations, and uh, has done so in a way that really runs, at least in my experience, runs counter to a lot of the business-as-usual wisdom for how to create groups that are productive and effective, um, which essentially, in a nutshell, if I had to summarize, is, is the approach of accountability. To assume that people will not do things unless you are watching them closely, and then to watch them closely until they do them. Which is ultimately a fear-based approach to leadership and management, and one that can be deeply traumatizing in a world that's hurting. And and that's one of the biggest core insights in the heritage that Mobius draws upon is the understanding that we live in a world that's hurting. That, uh, we need to be informed. We need to be trauma informed, which means to understand the way that trauma lives in us, lives in our bodies, lives in our, our groups, lives in our organizations and the way that it inhibits us. And, this really uh, has come to life in their latest offering to the world, which is a trauma-informed coach training program. And that program, which is live, if you're a coach, it's something you can apply to and enroll in. Um, this, this serves as the, the sort of scaffold for our conversation today. Uh, and it really opens up the doorway into an understanding of what becomes possible for people when we meet our trauma with compassion and love, when we heal from it, And when we access the creativity and the aliveness that's present when the trauma gets unfrozen and when healing starts to happen and when energy starts to move. And the headline here, one of the many headlines, but one I want to underline is that the very outcomes we say we want, productivity, efficiency, innovation, creativity, that we don't seem to get... Consistently or at all are available when organizations recognize that healing is part of leadership and that uh, practitioners like myself can contribute to that. Certainly not do it all our, on our own, but can contribute to that. So, this conversation is wonderfully rich and enjoyable for me. It's been a long time coming. Amy and I actually recorded a prior conversation that, for a vi- variety of reasons, we haven't released yet. It may still see the light of day, but we decided that we wanted to make sure that this one got out because it speaks so fully to the work that Mobius does in the world and the work more broadly that that uh, I see myself doing in the world and inviting others to do. And, and it was really fun to be in that flow with Amy. So without further ado, let's get settled in. <sighs> and hear what Amy has for us. Hi, Amy. Welcome hey, to the Wonder Andy. Dome. Welcome back to the Wonder Dome.
1: Thank you. I'm so, so happy to be with you again. Yeah. What a delight. Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah, it's really been, um, it's been on our collect, you know, our shared horizon for some time. And I'm really glad that I can land with you here uh, on a Friday in June uh, before you head into the Shabbat. And I'm just, yeah, very glad you're here.
1: Thank you for having
0: me. Yeah. Hmm. As I was as we were sitting together before I started we started recording, I noticed a part of me kind of getting really curious about uh, what I've been seeing you step forward into over the past year or so in the world in a really kind of clear, open-hearted way, which is which is this work of speaking to leaders and to practitioners who work with leaders about trauma and about how that shapes us and maybe cons- constrains us, if we're not conscious of it, from exercising leadership in a really authentic way. And I and I'm, I would love to explore that with you today, Amy, because I feel there's another part of me that feels... Um, so worried at the state of things that feels uh that sees how much we're all hurting and hurting each other in the process as we try and navigate this collective moment of disruption and crisis and ecological breakdown and there's and there's so many ways in which we could just kind of have a worried conversation about the state of the world but there's something in this message of becoming more in touch with the, the pain and the hurt that feels really important. And I wonder, just as I presence that, what does that what does that bring up for you? where Where should we start with that in mind?
1: Yeah, maybe I'll just Andy respond with a few first thoughts and we can go mm-hmm. back and forth. I mean, my first thing to say is that i I don't actually see this impetus to look more honestly, more openly, more courageously at the layer of trauma in each of us, in our families, in our organizations, and in society as a movement towards darkness, but actually a really an invocation of the potential of repair and restoration. Um, so it's, for me, the conversation about the pervasiveness of trauma and the urgency of trauma repair and healing is almost the opposite of a conversation about worrying about what's mm. evolving or, or mm. the crisis that we find ourselves in, although that is part of what is creating my sense of fire for bringing this conversation forward nakedly and candidly and very bluntly. Um, I see it as actually a conversation about rising up to this moment as practitioners and as leaders um, to be agents of restoration and Mm. part of what one could think of as a great turning in society towards um, what my teacher Thomas Hubel calls the scars in the fabric of humanity. Because Mm. if, if we don't make that turning towards, then we continue acting out. And the acting out, as you say, uh, is a, an enormous uh, hindrance to relation. It's enormous hindrance to creative response to the crisis. And it's also, I believe that unhealed trauma is the blind spot that is driving the choices that we're making to harm ourselves, harm each other and harm the planet. Mm. So mm. I don't think there is a more central um, mandate of our generation of facilitators, healers, coaches, or leaders. Um, then he- helping people to understand the symptoms that we're seeing in society or the dysfunctions that we're seeing in organizations. What is what is the root cause of those behaviors or derailers, as you called them? And what would it mean for all of us to really purposefully, intentionally, and skillfully start the slow and meticulous process of repair?
0: Mm. Mm. So there's something that there's so much in there. I think we've just just laid the bedrock for the rest of our conversation. I, I want to lean into what you said near the start of that, which is you don't see, see this work as this kind of turn towards darkness or this tor- turn towards worry and kind of this turn towards, okay, here are all the bad things we need to worry about. That actually it's Perhaps a bit counterintuitively, at least for our, for the kind of culture that many of us swim in, that it's a turn towards repair and restoration. And maybe you could just speak a bit about that, because I, I know that there have been parts in me who are afraid of looking.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And what you're really, as you said, trying to, to speak to as clearly as you can is the invitation to look and and the possibilities of looking towards these blind spots that trauma produces in us. So maybe you could could you speak a bit to either how that's shown up in your own personal journey or how it shows up in the work that the moment when you sense there's an opportunity to look but also the fear of looking and how and how we hold that. How might yeah, we hold good. that more collectively?
1: It's a very tender question. So let me just start by level setting what do I mean by trauma? Uh, I mean, any experience that's so overwhelming in that moment that we can't process it, we can't integrate it, we can't relate to it. Mm-hmm. So a part of us gets frozen in time and stuck there. And that uh, zone of numbness or that zone of dissociation or that zone of um, splitting off uh, walks with us as a numb spot, let's say, mm-hmm. or as a blind spot.
0: And could and, I just interject for one second here too? Like absolutely. I, I, I some someone listening might hear this, what you're saying sort of a bit metaphorically, and maybe that's useful metaphorically, but but the emergent research, as I understand it, on our physiology is that there are literally literally like spots of our body that hold the trauma and are are numb and repressed from our awareness that that this is not just a psychological that this is a this is all integrated. So you're in a way you're speaking quite literally that there are parts of us that are numbed. Is that right? hundred percent,
1: a hundred percent true. I mean, the soma, the cells of our body, the muscles of our body hold the emotional charge of that moment. Our unconscious mind often holds the memory and details of that moment. Mm. Our, uh, a, and our psyche holds it as a, mm-hmm. a way. Mm-hmm. So part of the reason people are afraid is that they are relating to the turning towards that moment as if it will be an immersive reenactment or re-immersion or re-traumatization. Mm. We're mm-hmm. afraid to feel like whatever it was that felt overwhelming in that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that's happened in the maturation of the trauma field is that we now understand that to re-immerse somebody in a without, you know, a titration or a calibration or a attunement and relational holding and a neurological and somatic um uh, resourcing. Uh, It is too overwhelming and Mm -hmm. people can get overwhelmed and and sort of disintegrated. Uh, And of course, the point of this work is never to give somebody uh, such a disequilibrium that they can't function. What we're trying to do, most of us that are doing this healing repair work, is to, first of all, systematically look at the micro behaviors and macro addictions that all of us use in order to sustain that numbing. Right? Mm-hmm. So One of the conversations we have with executives are assuming you can't tolerate your full emotional experience, which is sort of universally true for all of us. Or you tell yourself that to feel your feelings live and emergently would be overwhelming mm-hmm. and swampy. That means you must be doing something consciously or unconsciously to stuff your feelings or numb them or to hack them. And we look really like what are all the micro behaviors in everyday routine and what are all the addictions that are helping people to do that kind of numbing? Um, and of course, e- even the numbing strategies have uh, a cost to health, to men, you know, resilience, to spontaneity, to connection and rapport. Um, and all of those n- the numbing and dissociation in the moment of the trauma, thank God we can do that. That's like mm-hmm. a life-saving survival instinct. So it's not in any way to shame the numbing uh, process or or the numbing skill, even and numbing intelligence. It's just to say, in the right context and with the right holding and with the right accompaniment, can we lower the level of distance we walk with from our own interiority and start to um, unfold a, a sort of an emotional uh, expression an emotional touch point and emotional resonance with those parts of us that in much earlier in our life, when we were less resourced, less mature mm. and less intimate with others really was overwhelming, but mm-hmm. now perhaps it's less overwhelming mm. and Um, Certainly with good guidance and good therapeutic support, um, you can make massive shifts in integrating earlier difficulty that uh, that free up that energy, that unlock your presence, and that enable a kind of intimacy that's impossible. I can't feel myself and I can't feel you when I have a certain amount of numbing in Mm -hmm. my daily life. Mm -hmm. I just can't. And if leaders can't feel themselves, that means they can't feel the people around them. They won't know when people around them are hurting or need help or need coaching. They can't have the future appear in their consciousness in an emergent and listening way of fresh possibilities because they're not home. Mm-hmm. It's like nobody, nobody is there to receive the message. They're mm-hmm. not going to induct the information. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it puts a ceiling on our uh, the coherence of teams. It puts a ceiling on the sort of creativity and, and aliveness and vitality of an organization and societally it, it enables us to do tremendous destruction to our ecological home yeah. um, so the unnumbing process i feel very urgent about that's the first thing i would say the second thing is that um there's such a relief people have when they can tell the secrets of their lives so part of this turning towards is i take something that has been privatized and held in like a chamber of my heart as an unspeakable part of my life story Mm -hmm. and I reveal it in a safe way to someone who's trustworthy as a custodian and the relief in that moment Mm -hmm. so profound because it does two things it immediately de-shames the experience immediately just to have someone receive it with benevolent eyes immediately de-shames it and it also takes it out of its isolation, which is one of the symptoms of trauma. Um, and that, and so part of the repair, Thomas often talks about the relational uh, attunement is the repair. Um, and that's what I'm pointing at. Like the, the movement from there's a hidden chamber of my heart to you can walk with me through my life experience. That's a profound shift. It's a beautiful yeah. shift. It's a poignant shift.
0: Yeah. I really appreciate you underlining that because there's a... Uh... There's a sort of story I've heard myself tell, and I've heard others talk about, which is that there's there's this sort of healing waiting somewhere down the road, um, but it's going to be this arduous journey into into un- unknowing, and you're gonna you're gonna have to be really vulnerable and give up a lot, and and it's going to be scary. And in a way, I can like in a way, we're talking about the truth of that—that that it can. F- that you could actually go back into the trauma and get overwhelmed by it. If not, if you're not in the right context with the right care and attention, but what I'm hearing you say in this relational piece is that actually the whole journey could be for some, for some people, the whole journey of healing could be the journey from, I I have this hidden pain in me to I'm showing this pain to you. And, and if, if that pain is received and by someone else lovingly without judgment that in a way the, the healing is done in a way, like there's something about that, that distance can be crossed in a, in a moment in the right setting, that it doesn't necessarily have to be this journey of years and years of therapy and all the kind of sort of things that we talk about. Sort of I think, bo- a, a both. I, think, and, it's both, I, I
1: think it's both and Annie, that's right. Yeah. I think, I think there are aspects of the healing process that are immediate and profound. One of them is the move from keeping things secret to speaking them One of them is holding it by yourself in an overwhelmed system that can't hold it to having it held in uh, companionship and in ideally in my view in collective mm-hmm. um so I prefer to do this work in groups because you know we're not supposed to hold our pain alone that that's a that's a bizarre um, primacy our culture puts on independence and autonomy and what we call, quote, resilience. Really what that means is we've denuded community as a natural form of relations so profoundly that we don't remember that we're supposed to walk interdependently. Mm -hmm. We're supposed to need each other and we're supposed to give generous support to one another. So just the move from isolation to collective is also a moment of repair.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: And then there's the slow and painstaking and sometimes very, very difficult process of reintegrating the emotional experience, the neurological experience, and the relational hurt that happens in whatever the trauma was, whether it was a trauma of an incident or an absence of some kind of attunement or holding or attachment. All of that is tough terrain. So I I don't want Mm -hmm. anything I would say to suggest that this is a, a sort of an immediate miraculous therapeutic process, it's miraculous and it's arduous both. Um, but it's much, much less so if you do it with with each other, much yeah. less so. Yeah. And also um, what I notice, I, I, I have the privilege to lead five day uh, healing programs for leaders. What I notice is that the process of reigniting the natural arising of joy, of love, of art, artistry, of life force, that happens very quickly. It's like the minute you make the sort of conscious choice to turn towards and to dedicate yourself to coming home, life will just start, the river of life starts moving in you almost immediately. Um, So when people come in on the opening night, they barely look at each other in the eyes. They're shaking hands in a very formal way. They're often dressed very formally. There's a lot of shielding in the way that they interact at hello. Hello. And by the last day, it's extremely natural and almost universally common. They're hugging each other. They're dancing with each other. They're holding each other while they cry. They're celebrating each other. They're writing poems. They're you know playing an instrument they haven't played for 20 years. You don't have to tell people to do that. That is the immediate <laughs> yeah. natural life force coming back online. Yeah. Um, it's tremendously touching and very reliable. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Mm beautiful. I'm glad we're here with this because I had a, a question earlier when you were speaking to the presence that becomes possible once someone says yes to this healing journey and the way that through the lens of leadership that allows for more access to future possibilities, it allows for more kind of care of the team and of the organization and its health and well-being. it allows for more creativity and and spontaneity and groups and teams like all of these upsides, that maybe the the part of our society that wants to know what the return on investment is you know it's like so clear and i wonder if you could just speak to that even more fully that that what's the what's the potential for a leader who is reciting poetry or playing an instrument that she hasn't played in 20 years or Whatever, you know, whatever emerges once that river starts flowing, uh, what what what's possible when they bring that back from the retreat and into their their organizational life?
1: Well, first I'll answer it with a sort of to use your language, a return on investment. Why would a company care that an executive yes. have such an opening? And then I'll answer it from more of a mystical or relational dimension. There's a lot of mandates that we now understand senior executives are being asked to cultivate as mindsets and ways of being that are really critical during a complex period such as this is, as you said, a disrupted one, an emergent one, an urgent one, a very crisis-laden one, so as examples, um, to create psychological safety on their teams so that people will um say what their honest opinion they'll disagree you can have sort of create what linda hill at harvard calls creative abrasion on teams to generate real collective intelligence but you can't induct psychological safety if you're still in a mode of being very harsh and judgmental and sort of authoritative with your team. Mm -hmm. And you can't drop the authoritarianism and control if your own internal environment is something you have in a vice to stay controlled. Mm
0: -hmm. You have
1: to actually melt that vice inside yourself and be willing to live through the unknown dimensions of your own psyche in order to be able to disarm in front of people and therefore induct that in your whole Mm -hmm. team.
0: It's kind of like an internal psychological safety is essential for any sort of contribution to the collective safety.
1: That's a beautiful way to put that. And another dimension of that is that um, senior leaders, the more senior you get in an organization, the more expert you get and the more persuaded you get uh, that your ideas are correct. Mm -hmm. And the more authority you have inside the company, the less easy it is for the people around you to disagree or bring in a part of the picture you might be missing. So that cognitive agility or that genuine humility and curiosity to seek out the parts of the picture that don't naturally arise in your survey of the landscape of an issue, Mm -hmm. that humility um, really is only possible when you've healed some of your shame because otherwise people conflate the modesty of humility with the devaluing of themselves. So there's all kinds of psychological inhibitors Um, to psychological safety, to collaboration, to building trust, to collective intelligence, to innovation, that unless you do the deeper healing work, people can't reliably deliver those mindsets and behaviors in the heat of a high-stress moment. Mm -hmm. They'll default to their reactive protective patterns. Mm -hmm. And in their reactive protective patterns, they'll get more uh, more demanding, they'll get more critical, they'll get less willing to tolerate failure, less able to create learning environments where people learn as they go and offer each other generous coaching. They'll actually behave in ways that are completely counterintuitive to the transformational qualities we now need leaders to demonstrate. Mm-hmm. So you cannot, in my view, you can no longer separate organizational evolution, leadership development, and healing. Healing is the journey people have to go on in order to act in transformational ways mm-hmm. in alchemical ways in
0: mm-hmm.
1: um to take us into a future that mm-hmm. will look very different than what we see today
0: i hear you uh thank you that was i really really appreciate that and um i hear you sort of saying maybe a bit implicitly in this moment something i think i've heard you say more explicitly and also i've heard folks like uh rasha sodia and michael gelb in their book um mm-hmm. Is it Leadership as Healer? Am I getting the title right? Something like that. Leader as Healer is Nicholas, healer. Johnny's um, oh, can... Nicholas Johnny's book. Oh, and that's Nicholas Johnny's book, right? That's another one. Um, this sort of sense, even uh, Marty Linsky, I remember hearing him once say that like leaders, great leaders are in the business of grief counseling, that there's uh, you know, there's this, this space in which leadership is actually, if you've done that healing work as a leader, then at least a large part of your role as leader if you want to exercise leadership is to create that potential in others, in the space, in the organization, and in in the wider collective. Does that, does that feel true for you? Like that actually there's a capacity for a leader to become a healer. I deeply deeply
1: believe that is the nature of the moment we're in that, that, uh, that leaders are being asked to widen their emotional range of accompaniment um, in order to be, Uh, a a sort of receiving zone for the people around them. I I mean, I think that is the opportunity. Why does Marty talk about it? Marty is a great theorist along with Ron Heifetz and my dear friend Xander Grashaw in adaptive leadership. And adaptive leadership is a theory of how do you help individual leaders, teams, and organizations cultivate change agility. Um, And what they talk about, which I find very poignant, is they talk about the resistance to change is not a resistance to change as such. It's a resistance to the implied loss or the fear of loss Mm -hmm. involved in the change. So one of the tasks of a leader in a high change environment, which is basically everyone right now, is to differentiate um, the phase of uh, loss, which uh, Xander talks about as hospicing, right? To help Mm. people let go of what is being let go of In a change process, because some part of the way we operate, the existing behavioral repertoire, the existing set of assumptions, the norms of daily operation change in a change process. Of course, that's what we're trying to do. But something's lost in that. And if you ignore that, you start to produce defensiveness and resistance to the change, which is why so many change efforts fail, because we don't have the emotional attunement. To Exactly as you said, or as Marty's referencing, to help people grieve what they're losing. Mm -hmm. The second task of the leader is to manage what's staying intact. And, you know, the third task of a leader in a change process is to let the future whisper to them and start inducting Mm -hmm. what's novel, what's fresh, what's innovative, what's alive, what's emergent. Um, And I think all three of those things, um, helping people to let go, helping people to mourn, helping people to manage um, their emotional response and the identity shift that's required in the change, helping people in the light of the change to have enough stability and groundedness and centeredness to keep driving excellence of performance in the things that are continuing and helping people to have the nimbleness and imagination uh, and inspiration and intuition uh, to download the future. Um, mm. Those are all three tasks of the leader. So it's like leader as healer, leader as centering, mm. uh, a keto mm. master, mm. And, and leader as you know mystical inductor of the future. Um, it maybe would be a way I would describe mm. it.
0: Gorgeous. That might be a nice segue into you. You said earlier. We I feel like we've spoken pretty robustly on the kind of. What are the, some of the quote-unquote upsides or returns on investment here if you say yes to this possibility as a leader? And you also said you'd like to speak to maybe some of the more mystical or relational, like there's mm-hmm. a mystical or relational answer to the question of what's what's the potential or possibility or meaning in inviting someone into a space where they reclaim, for instance, in your example, a, a mu- music that they haven't played for 20 years or poetry or play or or dance or whatever might come in that moment where the river of life flows through them. What's just, yeah, maybe speak to that from the, from the mystical lens.
1: I'll start with the relational and work my way up. Mm. Um, You know, it's very common in the journey of repair that people will go back and try to mediate or resolve longstanding conflicts or relationships that have taken on a certain dis. Uh, dysfunctional distance or uh, or are even wrenched parts of their lives. Um, and so there's like a, a beautiful repair process that isn't just an internal one. I integrate facets of myself that come back online or I unlock my own life force. But I also look around the ecosystem of my life, both professionally and personally, and start to repair relationships that have been broken, fractured, or harmed through the process of my lack of awakeness. That's a beautiful part of the process. There's also this lovely rebalancing that often happens between people's um, overwork, overextension, and over giving. So that because all of those things that over uh, uh, drive um, mm-hmm. maybe we'll say is part of a numbing strategy. So when mm-hmm. you start to feel, you start to feel attracted to and cultivate in your life qualities of spaciousness and stillness and a much slower pace of living and relating. And that slowness is also homeopathic to a culture that's on adrenaline and addicted to constant information and constant motion and constant doing with too little being. Mm -hmm. And I think that's not just the, the sort of rebalancing of doing and being isn't just good for a person, it's very good for a person but I think it's also a critical missing element of society. Mm. We don't have enough time for reflection. We don't have enough time for contemplation. We don't have enough space to metabolize our life experience. Mm. So we just become more and more stacked with unprocessed experience. And that keeps us from being really present. And if we're not really present, there's a relational and a mystical cost. I don't really get to see you. I don't behold you. I'm not Mm -hmm. really available to receive all the information Mm -hmm. you're giving me verbally, kinesthetically, non-verbally through the transmission of your energy field. Mm -hmm. I don't actually receive it. So there's a whole way in which I don't get the signal of life and B I'm guarded against the intimacy and the nakedness of receiving it. So I also don't let it permeate me, Mm -hmm. which means I miss some of the meaningfulness of my own life, Mm -hmm. both, both the, I don't let the hard things touch me and, and move my heart, but I also numb and dull the, the joy and the vibrancy and the um, inspiration that my life could. So there's that that sort of absence of spaciousness. And the third thing I think it costs us, and then I'll move to the mystical, is that I also, in order to, another byproduct of numbing myself is that I literally lose chi. So I move through my day, through my life, feeling a quality of fatigue and a quality of dullness and a quality of sameness. It's very hard if you're not in a sort of quality of vitality to find yourself saying something you've never said before, or to suddenly produce an innovative impulse or an artistic expression. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So imagine, you know, one way to think about it that says a metaphor is like, we're living in a black and white world when God gave us a colorful world.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm.
1: And that's a that's an enormous gap. Yeah, the difference between the world in numbness and the world in beauty is profound. How can you yeah. can't overstate that?
0: Yeah, I have a this is this is evoking. I have a recent experience in my own life that I feel called to share. Would you mm. be interested in hearing that? Absolutely
1: beautiful, yeah. of course. Yeah,
0: of course. That speaks to I I think my sense is it really speaks to some of the wisdom that you're imparting here. Which is the way in which we can start to use busyness as a as a a way to keep life at distance, until at some point, actually we've created so much busyness in our lives that we can't keep up with the very the like the strategy itself takes us down, takes brings us to our knees. And that really happened to me actually this season. You know, I'm a father of three. Uh I, I work in the profession that you've helped sort of shape and steward with Mobius. Oh, that's
1: as, very generous.
0: Yeah. And I and I love it. I source a ton of meaning from it. Right. And uh, both as a dad and as a practitioner, of I course. source meaning from both. And the past, you know, to the past like from like basically January to uh, a month ago were very busy. I, mm-hmm. I had a, allowed a busyness to kind of show up. And my version of it was like, this is like all really important and I'm here for it and I'm of service. And, you know, I could kind of feel the parts of me that sourced meaning from all of this and created an identity around it going, keep going harder, harder, deeper, deeper. And I was out in San Diego maybe three or four weeks ago, about a day before I was about to facilitate a, a two-day deep dive workshop with some, some participants um, around some adaptive leadership work, actually. And I was sitting in an outdoor cafe near the San Diego museum of art. And I just was exhausted. And I heard a voice in me say, why does any of this matter, Andy? Like, why are you facilitating? Why are you, why, like why are you here away from your family? What are you doing? And I was like, Oh my gosh, I'm like on the edge of burnout. Like, listen to this, this voice going, like, ask me what I'm doing. And I, and I and I might have in other moments in my life just said it's fine, go away, voice. Like this is important, but I said okay, all right. I hear that. It's a, other parts of me a little scared to hear that voice in me because I don't identify as kind of a cynical person. But nevertheless, here was this voice, and I said, how about this, Sandy? How about we just go into the the museum, and find a piece of art to sit with, just one piece of art. I don't know what it's going to be, but can we just do that even if we're not sure that anything matters? Okay, I'll do that. So I went into the museum and kind of found my way into the Southeast Asian. They had this beautiful uh, permanent exhibit of Southeast Asian art, you know, just gorgeous uh, Buddhist artifacts and, and just all this really amazing stuff. And I turned a corner and there was this larger than full size, like human body of the statue of Guanyin, who is a figure in Buddhist mythology, a, a kind of uh, expression of compassion. She embodies compassionate spirit. And I'll maybe put a picture in the show notes for people who are listening, but she just had this expression. Whoever carved this figure was this like almost smile, but not quite. Eyes half open, half closed, in a state of repose, arm leaning on her knee, one foot up, just kind of very relaxed, fully. You know, if you saw someone like that out in the world, you'd be like, wow, this person is just totally comfortable in their body. And there was a bench right in front of Guanyin. And I just sat with her for 10 minutes, maybe something like 10 minutes. And I felt her going, like, Andy, of course you're exhausted. That's a bit, that's okay. Of course you're sin. Of course. Bring the cynicism. That's okay. Just sit. It's all you need to do is sit. And I I just was like, felt so welcomed by this, this carving that some person in their own creative mastery thousands of years ago had carved. I felt Mm. so welcomed in the presence of that. A group of school children walked by me and I just like, she was like, of course the kids are walking by, let them walk by. And I stayed with my eyes closed and they all got really quiet. A group of like teenage school kids all like, instead of like, you know, I could, you could imagine them teasing me or laughing. They all got so quiet and they just all walked by me right between me and Guan Yin. And uh, I left after that 10 minutes, 10 minutes or so of quietude with an abundance of energy and excitement for the work I was about to do, but also with a tenderness for the parts of me that were quite tired by the work that I had been doing. That it didn't have to be either or, but in that moment of invitation to reflection as you're speaking to, stuff became available to me that simply was not available in the like, keep going, this is important, don't stop, don't give up. So it feels really yeah. good to tell this out loud and thanks for creating the space for it.
1: It's such a dimensional, exquisite story, Andy. I wanna just reflect back to you a few of the threads if I could. Yeah, please. One, just um, it's really touching and I think important that you share a story where you felt in a moment under-resourced Really, you know, what you called almost burned out, exhausted, and you knew what to look for to re- resource yourself. Mm. Literally, resource. Re- yeah. Mm. Um, and, mm. you know, that everybody that's a healer or a helper has to have that repertoire of what will reignite their spirit. Um, because if you are offering yourself to hold pain, to accompany people's healing process, really any kind of depth work, whether it's therapeutic coaching, group process work, doesn't matter that, that, that having that instinct available and in the moments that you need it is such an important, important part of the practice. So that's the first thing that struck me. The second thing that struck me was the, you know, just so touching thing you said about how that piece of art was made thousands of years ago. And it spoke to you so profoundly mm. in that moment. And, mm-hmm. um, And part of my mystical answer of why the practices I'm describing are important is that it moves us from modern time into eternal time. Mm. Mm -hmm. It moves us from the present moment into the timeless and the infinite. And that um, refuge place that's available to us in any moment of practice, whether it's prayer or meditation or ecstatic dance, or a healing conversation or uh, creative art, whatever the expression, the form of moving into that eternal time is, that's a waterfall of nourishment that we are parched for in culture and in most organizations. Mm-hmm. So why does it matter that she writes a poem or he um, plays the instrument or they write a letter to their father they haven't spoken for in 10 years? It's um, that act of restoration brings us closer to the divine. Mm -hmm. It brings us closer to celestial reality. It brings us closer to alignment with what is being asked of us. Um, And that will create a world of more harmony, more sanity, more compassion, as you said, uh, more of many things that we crave, more inclusion, more belonging, more opportunity to express what's unique about you, Everything we yearn for is in that possibility, I think. Mm. The other thing I wanted to say is um, you said, you know, I'm overworking because I I believe that the work is important and I take meaning from it. And I just wanted to describe what I think of as a sort of two-part development process. For many, many of us, we weren't um, well mirrored as children. We weren't valued for our uniqueness. We weren't seen for the specificity of who we are. Uh, We weren't celebrated for our, you know, path of learning and failing and learning. Um, And so most of us don't actually um, have an interior of sort of self-acceptance, unconditional love. Mm -hmm. I sometimes describe it as Mm -hmm. self-blessing. And in the absence of that, we take our meaning from things that are external. Mm -hmm. And those of us that also have a quality of nobility and caring um, attach that meaning to service. Um, And it is really actually a very, very important part of a spiritual path is to have an expression of service and helping. I don't mean to diminish that. Um, But the dilemma is if we do the service, not just from Karuna, the natural arising of compassion, but also from a a regressed part that's looking for Mm -hmm. ways to prove their goodness as a sort of self-improvement project, then we are likely to risk overgiving because that's a sort of endless need to be reinforced and, and feel like, you know, your own goodness. We all want to rest in our own goodness. And in that we will inflate the importance of what we are doing. It's sort of counterintuitive instead of having a proportionate understanding of how we exist in a dance of life that has many, many, many dimensions of repair happening all the time. We start to feel indispensable um, and in that indispensability we don't give give ourselves the 10 minutes you just described yeah. that are you know of course absolutely critical
0: mm. absolutely critical I feel like you've been listening into my therapy sessions Amy mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> well the, the good news is this is everybody's walk this is yeah. a universal. Yeah. this is a yeah. universal walk
0: yeah, yeah. I had a, a um I work with a wonderful therapist who's been mm-hmm. lovely for me in the midst of of this very you know, I'm 42. Uh, our We did not plan to have three children, but our children are IVF babies. And we had exactly three embryos. And my partner is uh, from a family of three, and she's the youngest of three. And so there's a, a moment where we met our daughter five years ago, our eldest daughter, and went, oh, my God, what if we said to ourselves, oh, we could have one or two? And then and what if they had plucked one of the other embryos out of the metaphorical hat Mm -hmm. and we stopped there we would have met now we've met all three but so we would have met our our middle child would have been the eldest or our youngest child would have been the eldest I mean it's kind of wonderfully uh science fictional except it's here Mm -hmm. and uh and we wouldn't have met our eldest daughter if we had made that choice and so there's a moment where our heads went oh shit (laughs) and our hearts went oh yeah and uh, and so we said, we've gotta give these three kids a, a chance. and it's been a huge I mean, it's been a massive act of surrender and acceptance. There's so much, you know, like for instance, there's a retreat that that's happening next week that you've invited me to, and i and I just I have to I can't do it. um darn it, I have to say no, there's so many things that that a a certain version of me would just say yes, 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 keep saying yes to because that's important, and that will. And that will make me the the practitioner that I want. to. And there's all this like kind of the what you're speaking to, the ways in which we can over inflate and grasp and chase and keep piling on because some part of me needs to be seen. And I have to kind of say to that part, like, it's okay, sweetie. We just can't do that this year. <laughs> and that's been really powerful and, and meaningful for me in a really hard way to have these moments where I have to make the choice that I have to make for for the path that I'm walking. So um, I really want to, uh, I guess, just cosign on what you're pointing to, which is the ways in which we can, from a beautiful place of intention and care, uh, inadvertently overextend ourselves, or uh, constrain ourselves, or actually weaken the very foundation upon which our fullest expression of possibility can come from. And uh it's a subtle, it's a subtle line, you know? And it's a subtle line. There are always parts of me that go, oh well, you can do that one more thing, Andy. I get it. You don't want to do everything. I get it, but you could do that one more thing, right? And I'm like, yeah, I could do that one more thing. And then done. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well first of all, I just so appreciate Andy, your vulnerability and truth telling about the intricacies of your life. It's so sweet and touching. And I love that you call yourself sweetie. I hope we all do that. <laughs> very endearing. Very endearing. Um, I wanted to just respond to a couple of things you were saying. Mm. Um, one, this notion of surrender or um, letting life reveal itself as it does, I think is a very, very important dimension of spiritual maturation and spiritual development. And it's not a one-time moment. Um exactly <laughs> as you said it's it's a it's a lifetime of practice. um, and you know, in some ways, I think the hardest dimension of spiritual growth is uh, really letting uh, God's will be done, maybe is a simple way to mm. say it. That's the first mm-hmm. thing I wanted to say. The second thing I wanted to say is as as best as I understand metaphysic reality, and I'm still a very much a beginner, um the way you describe the preciousness of your three children and the Urgency life had to have all three of them arrive. I think that's how we are each in the garland of life. I think each one of us is that urgent and important and has Mm -hmm. something that essential to give life. Um, And part of the reason to just go back to your deep question, why does it matter? It matters because we're here for a purpose. And that purpose is very unique to each of us. And maybe it takes us our whole life to find out what that purpose is. Um, but it's important f- to be fidelitous to looking and mm-hmm. to walking
0: until mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Thank mm-hmm. you for saying that. Yeah, I really felt a lot of relaxation in my body as you pointed to that. I mean, uh, recently a colleague of me shared with me a way that they they resource resource themselves is to remind themselves that inclusive of themselves that the room they're walking into, every single person in that room was a baby, every mm-hmm. single one of them. Yeah. And that those those children in us, those children that we were, hold some something essential about who both who we are and who we might become. Should we say yes to that invitation you've just made? That we're here. We're here for we we're here. We're here for some kind of reason, whatever that word means, right? But like, there is no other Amy Fox. There is no other Andy Cahill. There is no like. And so that singularity that is each life, even as all of us are those singularities collectively, is so. Yeah, that's it. It was just there was my daughter, and I said, "What if we had said no to you?"
1: So the, the, interesting, no? question, the interesting question for all of us is: where are we saying no to our own life path and our mm-hmm. own life force, and mm-hmm. you know, our own life destiny would be a question. Mm. The other thing that strikes me when you say I walk into a room and I remember that everyone was children, I would say it a little bit more radically. I would say in everyone, there is still a child waiting Mm -hmm. to be loved, waiting Mm. to be held, waiting to be attuned to. And any one of us can be that moment where that longing starts to be met. And um, that's profound to be able to offer that. But it means in yourself as a practitioner or a healer, You have to have done enough of your own deep healing work to be able to meet the person with belovedness for everything that they are. The beauty, the gifts, the luminosity, the pain, the projections they might bring, the dysfunctional behaviors they might exhibit. If I'm not an unconditional field of genuine kindness, then I can't be that restorative moment.
0: Yeah. Mm. Mm. That feels like the... The perfect moment to presence the work that you're bringing into being to help more practitioners and more leaders walk the path of of that presence. To to become someone who, if they choose, if they say yes to it, um, to be someone who could welcome and love every child that's in that room, regardless of whatever pain or projection or hurt or fear or... Whatever that comes in with that that child in the room. And you've got, is it like a, a year long program around this? Is that right?
1: Yeah, thank you for asking, Andy. Yeah, um, I have the great privilege of co-leading with Thomas Hubel, a year long certificate program for trauma informed consultants and coaches. That will launch in March of 2024, mm. just as we did an open marketing event about it to let people know not only what the program is going to be, what the, what the global movement we hope to be initiating with the program is reaching for, aspiring to be, and hoping to contribute. Um, and we're accepting applications right now from practitioners. And exactly as you said, the program is really designed in two parts Um, One part is to help people do their own healing work. Um, Many, many practitioners have done some cultivation of their inner life, but often they haven't done the kind of level of trauma work and shadow work that we're hoping to conduct in our uh, in-person first forum. And then after that, we're going to spend a lot of time really thinking about what does it mean to become, as a practitioner, more sensitive to trauma, more alert to moments of reactivity and trigger in your client's capable of helping provide a kind of co-regulating environments of attunement, of mm-hmm. sort of uh, matching uh, energetic frequencies, of deep receptivity, of deep invitation. Um, and equally to make sure people don't um, feel like they're being asked to go outside their scope of practice and their expertise. And they know where does a coaching or consultative or facilitation relationship with a client, what's the boundary of that after which you're sort of crossing over into therapeutic to- terrain and it's better handled by somebody who's qualified as a trauma expert to take somebody through that, um, that particular part of the healing process. Um, and I have the great joy and privilege in our work of having integrating trauma therapists into our leadership develop deeper leadership development mm. program, not, not everything we do aspires to be um, sort of working on early attachment issues, but the deeper transformational programs that we do do aspire to do that um, and of course, the people that are uh, guiding those programs and guiding that process have this secondary level of uh, trauma restorative capacity, which is beyond what this program aspires to give people, but also mm. um, very touching and very beautiful.
0: Mm. Mm. Amazing. So, um, yeah, the, my, the question, as I hear you say that, the question that's emerging for me is something like, for some reason, in particular, the word consultant is causing this this kind of I don't know if it's a tension in me, but it's a curiosity in me around uh, the story that I have in my head. And I think that I'll, that perhaps a number of people have in their heads is that a consultant is a kind of expert. I think this is maybe the this also for many people is, is true about coaches, that the story is like the coach is the one with the game plan. And if you just follow their, their 10 steps, you're going to achieve success. And I think that narrative has really softened and opened quite a lot, at least as far as I can tell as a coach. But I still hear that story around consulting that like, I'm going to come in and give you the stack of recommendations and you shall go forth and implement them. And my sort of expertise and armor doesn't ever come off. Like that's the point of what you're hiring me for. And I wonder if you could just speak to like, if I'm a consultant, who's getting curious about this stuff, what, what is a trauma informed consultation look like? What does it mean for me to go into an organization and be aware of and track for those layers of organizational life as I try and understand and consult and support.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of traditional consulting has been a matter of providing expertise and data analysis and sort of uh, giving information at the pattern level of predictively of what's coming or what's happening in the industry, all of that. I'm talking about a different kind of consulting, obviously, um, as you suggest, one that is, not just cerebral or intellectual or analytic and logical, but one that has a a huge range of intelligences deployed Mm. in how you can serve your client. Um, I actually think that because I believe so many of the organizational and business derailers live in the terrain of uh, emotional stuckness, emotional um, absence, and relational um, ill-attunement, maybe I'll say. Mm. Mm -hmm. Missed communication, poor communication, Mm -hmm. reactive conversation, stuck polarization. Because I diagnose the circumstances of organizational dysfunction as I do, I think the future of consulting means I I can give you my expertise, but I can also lend myself in skillful ways to helping the organizational culture and the fabric of interaction and the nature of the leadership of that organization Mm -hmm to Mm. evolve and to mature and Mm. to expand Mm. and that in doing that we're going to unlock a a tremendous change in organizational design and collaborative process in collective intelligence it has in real implications for how we think about how organizations will operate what will be the default assumption just to use a very concrete example andy to close this answer to this question I really think that the notion that your personal life is meant to be completely devoid from your work life is a trauma symptom. It's utterly artificial. Mm. And that there's absolutely no reason why the person who I've been law partners with for 20 years couldn't know that I have an autistic child and that some days I come in and I need support. And that isolation or that sort of alienation we walk with in our workplaces, which is where we spend the vast majority of our time has a very high cost Mm. in motivation, in engagement, in belonging, in employee retention, in employee excellence, in process excellence, et cetera, et cetera. So if I'm a consultant and you don't know that I care about you, I care about your company, I care about your success, I care about your career path, and I care about your life, um, then you're probably not going to bring to me the things that really keep you up at night, Mm. neither commercially Mm. nor
0: personally. Mm. Mm. there's a
1: whole range of conversations you won't entrust to me. Mm. And so when I train professional service consultants which I do a lot, I'm always trying to help them show up not just with their expertise but with their expertise and their heart. Mm. And that's a very different kind of consulting, you're absolutely right.
0: Yeah, that's gorgeous. I get I'm getting a sense of so much potential there that 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 kind of trauma informed awareness allows for me as consultant to show up much more compassionate and attentive to the emotional layers of the organization, not just the kind of structural layers. And if I have the right language, I can lean on the intellectual, still lean on the intellectual expert part of myself to provide, uh, let's say, like a map. Uh, oh, here, oh, here is the, here's a way of thinking about this stuckness you all are feeling. And and just that's becomes,
1: like it just becomes a much more accurate and dimensional map. Yeah, um, you're absolutely right. Of course, you're not taking out the analytic. You're coupling the analytic with the intuitive. You're coupling the problem solving with the relational repair, um, and then your solution is actually much more likely to stick.
0: Yeah, um, yeah, that's really exciting stuff. I love uh, I love that you're actively bringing this into the the consultative word world because it is. Yeah, at least again, my own story is there's so much ways in which it has actively attempted to divest itself. Not only will I not have the conversation with you that I really need to have because I don't trust you as consultant, but I as consultant don't don't trust myself or don't value that layer of the organizational life because I've it's all it's all about structure or whatever that kind of you know framework is. And you're sort of saying no, it's both. And don't yeah, leave and that so- behind, but bring it in more deeply, rooted in the heart, rooted in the experience.
1: Yeah. I mean, we could say going back full circle to where we began, because there is so vast an amount of trauma, both in the business world and in those consulting to the business world, we have created organizations and consulting practices historically that are anti-intimacy, anti-body, anti-emotion, anti-spirit, and anti-relationship. I think that will just no longer be acceptable. I think we're up against so much what they call VUCA, volatility, ambiguity, complexity, the demands on leaders and those that help leaders are going to require us to move in the direction of this greater wholeness. It's mm-hmm. just, it's not going to be possible to do it without that. And AI, by the way, will make just providing information and data sets not that relevant. It's not going to be the kind of help people are reaching for.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I want to just share that uh although the that I began by naming some parts of me that are worried about the kind of volatility and uncertainty and and complexity that we're in and the crises that we're in that that worry is there and I'm, I'm not trying to make it go away. I want it to be here. And I at as we arrive here near the end of our conversation, I'm just really in touch with uh other parts of me that are standing up straight or going, "Yes. Yes, if more of us, and I don't know what the right threshold is, right? And I'm not going to worry about it. But if some percentage of us, more of us said yes to the ways of being that you're describing, shifts, the, the, the flow of life would flow. And that actually that would be enough if we could have let that, if more of us could let that flow of life flow would be really, really powerful. So I'm noticing hope in me. I'm noticing a kind of rootedness in me. And I really want to just thank you for that.
1: No, that's really touching. The, a couple of things came to me while you were talking. One is just, we're really talking about a journey uh, that's often characterized as sort of the movement from fear to love. And that's an individual healing journey. That's a family's healing journey. That's a collective healing journey. And it's an organizational journey. Mm -hmm. Um, And really uh, what I hope, and and it thrills me that people would find it inspiring or galvanizing or sort of a call to action. I'm really inviting all of us as practitioners and as leaders to be part of that movement. Mm -hmm. That's the first thing I wanted Mm -hmm. to say. The second thing that struck me when you were talking, Andy, is just it is the moment where we're moving from a split between sort of the world of matter and the world of spirit into mm. a fusion of those two, um, and what we're describing is a sort of re-soulful or a re-kindling uh, uh, of the soul of business, um, and I find that you know very thrilling, yeah, mm. and mm. very hopeful, very mm. hopeful.
0: Mm. Gorgeous. We've arrived at a, just about at our time boundary. That feels like a perfect. It
1: always goes so fast when (laughs) we're talking. It really does. Really, it's delicious. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Amy. Thank you. Um, I feel complete. Is there anything else that uh, you want to speak to before we close today?
1: Um, Yeah, maybe just to close with a prayer that Mm. Mm -hmm. however people choose to lend themselves their gifts, their calling, their time. To this journey of restoration and repair, may it be blessed, may it be sufficient, and may it bring them a great sense of peace.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Amy. Really appreciate you. We'll be sure to share information about the the coaching, the trauma informed certificate that you're launching in March of next year, and links to all of your work out there in the world. But just a deep bow of gratitude and joy to you. This is really fun and meaningful today. Thanks, Sam. Thanks for tuning in to The Wonder Dome. This podcast was produced by me, Andy Cahill, with support from Kelly Surqua and audio editing and engineering services from Jim Surqua at Sump Pump Studios. The theme song was written and performed by Todd Marston. You can find The Wonder Dome wherever pods are casted. If you dig what we're doing here, please share widely, subscribe, and give us some love in the review boards. And if you feel called to support this humble offering to the world, while also making an even greater impact in the lives of others, consider becoming a monthly supporter. Not only will you help me keep the lights on and keep the show going for as long as I'm able, but 30% of all member contributions go directly in support of causes like the Black Lives Matter movement, the United Nations Refugee Agency, and the National Resources Defense Council. You can find out more at my website mindfulcreative.coach where you can also sign up for my newsletter learn about my transformational coaching work and get plugged into exclusive offers and community happenings in the meantime I'm wishing you a life of purpose power and presence we need you now more than ever